And then other things where like, oh, I was involved in a really interesting conversation on the influence of uh, social media and food safety. And it's like, wow, there's some crazy trends out there. I'm not gonna repeat them because they're so crazy. Actually, I will. Um, Welcome to another episode of the Bioinformatics Lab podcast. I'm Kevin Libwit. Today, again, with Andrew Page, we are from Fijian. And today, we're talking about the Food Safety Research Network and a recent conference that was hosted uh, just last week that you attended, Andrew. Yeah, I was uh, privileged to actually go to the uh, the very first conference of the Food Safety Research Network. It's held in Birmingham, which is in the middle of the UK, like right in the middle of uh, of England. Lovely little city. And we had a, we're in a lovely venue as well. So the Research Network brings together government, um, academics, and then industry into the one room, which is quite rare, you know, like often we're in our own little silos doing our own thing. And it's focused around, you know, what can, say, research do, like food safety research. So things like uh, the use of genomics, typing, <coughs> um, obviously foodborne pathogens, but also spoilage organisms as well would uh, we'll come into there. And it covers a wide variety of things. So excellent kind of day and great to have the right people in the right room at the same time the network itself actually is about two years old now i was involved in it originally at bbsrc who are a major funder of um non-human biological research in the uk uh wanted a research network and so quadrum where i used to work were very successful in that and uh, i had uh, the privilege to be on the, the management team initially and so helped to to get the the network set up and and go and and it is very much around having the community driver you know like uh grassroots more or less so what i found about this um particular conference though was was just the format was incredibly good <laughs> often when you go to a conference it's like you sit there and you're half asleep you're just waiting for a coffee break to come uh and you know to get the boost of caffeine <laughs> But in this case, actually, just like you know, you know, in this case, um, we actually uh, had a short talks and then it was into, I suppose, icebreaker interactive sessions um, with the idea being to try and mix people up as much as possible. So for the first one was uh, everyone on their name badge had to like a, a little emoji um, or a little fruit emoji. And uh, that meant that you had to go around and find other people, you know, and, and sit at the same table with the same uh, picture. And then you questions to answer, you know, like basically to get people talking and, and is mixed up. So you had people from government and, and uh, industry organizations uh, working with, um, with academia as well. It was more academic focus, but uh, I guess that's in the name, you know, research. And uh, then you'd have, you know, a few little talks, you know, lightning talks where people would just introduce what they are. More introductions, to be honest. And uh, so, yeah, I learned quite a lot. I love that. I love, uh, you know, an understated part of conferences is the organization and figuring out how to break sometimes social barriers to kind of get the collaborative conversations moving forward. I don't think I've ever been to one where that was dictated by an emoji uh on my badge <laughs> but it sounds like it was an yeah. effective one and, and even uh, before getting too much into the, the conference details when you talk about the food safety research network it sounds like it's still relatively nascent stage in just its second year but it's something like that um you know multidisciplinary cross network 
uh, effort there from industry, academic, research partners, which is an amazing thing. We've seen definitely in the U.S. those come like be powerful relationships that lead to tangible outcomes in so many different ways. But whenever you have those kinds of efforts, it's sometimes difficult to see who is driving the ship and what is the major priority. Is it especially when sometimes there's a competition or a poll from is this a research focus? Is this an applied focus? So whenever you're looking at the research network. What became? What is the main initiative there? Is it is it practical? Is it training, or is it making sure there's just an awareness of what's happening on each side of the fence there? Yeah, so it's a bit about. Um, so they they funded actually a hackathon I did back in uh, what was it September or it was May a long time ago I think it was May actually um you were there as oh, a food that's safety right. uh, food yeah. safety bathmatic hackathon in Cambridge. And so they, they threw money into that as well, as well as BBSOC, which is quite nice. And so that, you know, they, that, that's not really training. That's more networking and uh, collaboration for the community's benefit. And a lot of these things are more for the community's benefit. So um, they, they do actually hand out research grants as well. So people will propose and then a very light format, you know, you can get a bit of money to do things because often uh, a lot of you can actually do a lot of good with just a small amount of money, you know, like 10, 20 grand here and there. It's just enough to kind of check, does this idea work or not? And then you can go for something bigger, you know, so like pilot projects and whatever. And so that's what I've done uh, quite a bit, you know, with, uh, with some of their most recent funding rounds is just to give that bit of that seed funding uh, with a light touch as well. What you don't need is to spend, you know, weeks doing up a proposal, you know, like that's 100 pages or whatever. And all the hoops you have to jump through for more for bigger grants you know you just need something like touch and so they did very well with that um it's kind of driven by i guess it's more research focused but it the idea is that uh, well often academics can go off on their own and solve problems that don't need to be solved or maybe their their problems they're looking in the wrong place and it's actually only by talking to industry and talking to government, uh, to the regulatory bodies and public health bodies that you find out actually that's not an issue, but this over here is an issue. Um, or that will never work in a factory or, you know, these kinds of things like academics. I know I saw a presentation on say strawberries and hepatitis A. Um, so because of climate change, you know, they're, they're we're getting food from different places and uh, different uh, different habits as well for for say buying strawberries in the UK strawberries are available maybe twenty eight weeks of the year because of uh, greenhouses and whatever, but then for the rest of the year to get them on the shelves of the supermarket they have to come from somewhere else and often they come from Africa, um in in the case of uh, the UK, and so they are flying in strawberries from Madagascar, however you know soft fruits they had hepatitis A in them and in the UK we don't routinely vaccinate people for hepatitis A it's a travel vaccine. And people are getting sick from it um, because it's a foodborne uh, virus. And so that's an issue. But academics be like, oh, well, you know, we can just, uh, you know, if you just heat it up to 71 degrees for like 20 minutes, it's fine. But who, who wants their strawberries, you know, uh, bo uh, burnt to crisp? Yeah, so, that's uh, a great example. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting just understanding those issues, not necessarily having solutions, but understanding what the actual issues are on the ground. Yeah, just touch points between, yeah, exactly, what's happening on the ground and what's happening in the laboratory. And, of course, there, there's a place for the absolute basic research, go for the curiosity, and maybe that's not necessarily 
the audience when you're looking at the food safety research. It's more so the academics um, who, who are trying to push the science forward that could be eventually applied in these instances of food safety. So that, that's a good context. And you said you, you got your involvement maybe starting a couple of years ago when you were at the Quadrum. How else can people get involved into uh, the Food Research Network? So yeah, <clears throat> the Food Safety Research Network, uh, it's open to anyone to join in the UK. Um, and it's just a matter of contacting them. Um, and it's usually organizational level. So companies or or, uh, or other organizations can uh, apply to join straightforward. It's more, it's meant to be grassroots and I don't think they turn anyone away. You know, if you have mm -hmm. an interest in a very niche little, uh, little area, then I'm sure they'd let you join. Um, and then obviously getting funding is, a, is another hurdle altogether. But it's, it's really nice that this is available and that it actually does bring people together rather than us just working away, doing our own thing in silos. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, the advances that we know about, say, with genomics and uh, taking those culture bacteria and then growing them and then looking at outbreaks and whatever, that's not necessarily well understood or what people don't understand how cheap it is or what needs to be done or what samples are useful. And what samples are not useful as well. So there, you know, there's a, a big lack of information there and it's only by researchers and, and public health coming together that you can actually spread this information. Absolutely, yeah. Even just the awareness for the industry or even public health partners on the government side of what is the latest and greatest happening on the academic uh, realm of things. So it's perfect. It sounds like it's more of a touch point. Hey, let's make sure we know what's happening because we're all trying to work in the same field to push food safety standards. And so with that as the context, what were the main points of conversation? You mentioned the strawberry uh, talk already, but yeah, what, what else? Uh, either from the icebreakers or the talks themselves uh, that were major takeaways yeah. from your end. Well, I think they're, they've applied for more funding. So another year of funding, which would be great if they got it. And there is also a government-led initiative called PathSafe, which uh, Nabil Ali Khan, I know, who uh, who's... Uh, used to work with me in Quadrum and as a co-host on Banff, uh, the Microbrain for Podcast. He um, he's working uh, on parts of that. So, you know, it's it's a very small world. But anyway, PathSafe is, is this government-led um, initiative, bring, and it's mostly government departments, but there is other partners it's, it's expanded to, and that's to basically sequence the loads of stuff. It's Part of it is empty your freezers and we'll sequence it. But then the other part is building the infrastructure. So if, I guess the closest in America would be... Um, genome tracker so uh, have the infrastructure there to track stuff and share data and whatnot so that's uh that's quite interesting and that had a huge amount of overlap with uh, obviously it's based on food safety pathogens so huge overlap um and then other things were like oh i was involved in a really interesting conversation on the influence of uh, social media and food safety and it's like wow there's some crazy trends out there i'm not gonna repeat them because they're so crazy actually i will um like someone <laughs> Someone uh, eating raw chicken until they get sick. I was like, what? That's, you, you know, the probability of the Campylobacter is very, very high. Unless they've already had it recently and maybe they're, they've got an immune response to it. But that's insane. But then there's also gray areas. Like um, people putting uh, turmeric, uh, which is a spice, yes. um, on, I don't know, sprinkling on top of lattes and stuff like that. The problem is, of course, the food safety element of that is unknown because it's usually it's cooked and when it's cooked you have no microbial issues but when you're sprinkling it on you know a raw uh, thing on top of uh, something that's not been cooked what what's the impact of that and well 
that can have implications. So there, there's unknowns, and then there's, uh, you know, there's obviously pure crazy trends, but then there's ones that are like, well, maybe, or maybe not, but we don't really know, but maybe we do. And so there's some gaps to be filled in. And then, of course, you have other trends have been going on for a while, like raw milk, you know, unpasteurized milk, <clears throat> which is uh, quite an issue, like, because people think pasteurization destroys nutrients, whatever, which is, is rubbish. Um, it, And then, obviously, you get outbreaks of diphtheria and all these random diseases you haven't heard of in, you know, decades because, or 100 years, because, you know, we've been doing proper things like pasteurization. Um, and then there's other things like, um, I've, I said hepatitis A and hepatitis E as well is an issue in some animals so a wide variety of things but generally food is safe you know it's it's only when people start doing crazy stuff on social media and we have to keep check on that and there's it's difficult you know balancing um civil liberties and whatnot and and the freedom of expression with people maybe doing something that is dangerous and i guess if people are not stupid enough to to copy them then that's fine but it's maybe the gray areas that are are, are, are the worst uh, eating raw chicken is one I am not familiar with as a trend. And maybe I could see, again, yeah, adding to a, a spice to it, to a latte, that seems a little bit more reasonable. And maybe there's just the unknowns about what's happening in, in those uncooked herbs. But wow, yeah, I didn't realize uh, there was a social media trend on uh, eating raw chicken until you were sick. Yeah, that sounds like uh, something yeah, we should have There's another one, actually. Uh, <laughs> if you get cooking instructions, so you... Um... They're usually for ovens, right? But what do you cook, some, say, something in an air fryer at? If you have chicken wings, right, For as an example, how long should you actually cook those in an air fryer? Because the instructions are obviously for big ovens or for, you know, different types of uh, thing. But a lot of people are, you know, generally won't get a thermometer and shove it into a, an item of food uh, and check the temperature. It, You'd like them to, but they won't. Um, so the real question is, how do you make sure that uh, people are actually cooking with new cooking devices in the correct way? Because, you know, they're all different, different sizes. And it's not one size fits all. It's not like you turn your oven on to 200 degrees Celsius. That is not far out. Um, and then cook something, you know, for 20 minutes. It's uh, much more nuanced than that. The other thing is then um, novel uh, meats as well. So we, we know... When you know when you look at a piece of meat and it's been cooked, you you know you you have a reasonable idea: is that cooked? Is that steak cooked? You know. Whereas when you have something like <clears throat> I don't know a a a meat replacement uh, burger as an example, how do you know it's cooked? It might be brown, but it may not be cooked on the inside, or maybe that uh, you can't eat those medium, and you're used to making burgers medium. And, you know, a whole host of things like that, you know, how do you tell, you know, uh, meat replacement um, sausages are actually cooked properly inside? You don't really necessarily on the colour. And the same then goes, you know, how do you tell if almond milk or oat milk has gone off compared to um, dairy milk? <clears throat> um, obviously, you know, uh, with normal cow's milk, you just sniff it. You go, mm, yeah, that's, that's bad. Um, whereas the same doesn't necessarily apply to all of the uh, the nut milks and things like that. So... There's a huge education piece around this and a lot of it is unknown as well, you know, and then how do you educate people, um, particularly when a lot of these things are promoted on social media. It sounds like a great conference there, just highlighting even just the known challenges that to be aware of in our field, hopefully areas uh, for which academics can pursue their efforts to uh, help close those knowledge gaps in our understanding of these different 
uh, maybe food trends or even uh, uh, different emerging practices we're seeing, like you said, with the with the air fryer. So it, what, what a powerful kind of conference to bring these types of people together. Like you said, I've seen the, the, the those kinds of conferences add a lot of value in the U.S. and, and you know, the sort of analogous um, conferences and, and groups we have out here. Um, and it sounds like some big initiatives are being undertaken there in terms of, you know, trying to sequence all the things like you mentioned uh, that may be parallel to the efforts of Genome Tracker. That's a huge initiative. You're talking about infrastructure, you're talking about coordination, data sharing, standardization of uh, methodologies. Uh, so, yeah, this is definitely a critical type of inf infrastructure, critical message um, and in pursuit that uh, this group is, is pursuing here. So at the end of this conference, what does the future steps look like for uh, the Food Safety Research Network? Well, I guess they want to continue for another uh, few years. So uh, hopefully they get their funding and it will continue. And I'm sure uh, we'll hear more about them in the future. All right, man. Well, we'll be keeping a lookout for that and hopefully uh, see some more materials on the Food Safety Research Network for years to come. It's obviously an important issue in our field.